you are choosing to be so bent on this one style of music that comes from the oppression of Black people. There's plenty of spirituals, but probably not a lot of arrangements of public enemy. (laughs) That's Steve getting practical with today's guest, the passionate Black educator, Jasmine Fripp, talking about how we accidentally limit our repertoire options. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Jasmine Fripp is a general music and choral teacher in Nashville, Tennessee. She is also the founder of The Passionate Black Educator, which advocates for black and brown students, empowers educators, and celebrates all cultures through solidarity. Find Jasmine's full bio, our show notes, and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. Alan, what was a high point for you in this interview? I loved her practical ideas she has for going beyond notes and counting in the classroom for all ages, general music, performance groups, everybody. It's cool. What did you dig, Steve? I like the solution she offered for teaching non-notated music, but for me, the must-listen part of this interview is when she talks about spirituals. That direction might surprise you. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I also loved her pointers on planning, real practical. Those are in the show notes too. Let's get to our conversation. Jasmine Fripp, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Well, we are glad to have you. Let's start with a discussion of terminology surrounding diversity and equity in the music classroom. Are there certain words or phrases that you find teachers misunderstanding or misusing? What do you think the basics are that everybody needs to know? I don't think it's necessarily like a term. The main thing that comes up for me is teachers want this quick fix to like diversify in their classroom, but they don't want to look inside. In order for you to dismantle white supremacy culture within your classroom, you have to look within first. And another misconception is that people automatically assume, you know, if it's dealing with white supremacy culture, it's only dealing with white people. But you have to realize that this has been something going on for hundreds of years and it affects everyone. So even me as a Black woman, I have to look inside and say, okay, what from white supremacy culture have I internalized that I need to like make sure I work through so that it doesn't project within my classroom? So that's the biggest thing. And of course, you have the hot button topic right now, critical race theory. A lot of people are really afraid of that term. They think it's something being taught in K through 12, but it's actually a framework that helps you look at curriculum through an anti-racist lens. It's not something that you teach people K through 12. There are courses in college where you can take and learn about it, but it's not something that you teach. So I encourage everyone to definitely look at your state laws uh, regarding the CRT ban and see what workarounds you can actually use for it because it really doesn't affect people's curriculum. It just says, hey, don't make white people feel bad. And that's not what we're doing anyways. I found it interesting you said that even you as a Black woman have found yourself teaching or working in a way that sort of still involved or incorporated the white supremacy culture. What's a recent example of something where you realized I maybe shouldn't be doing this or should be doing something different, a discovery or something that might surprise us in that regard? Perfectionism. 
perfectionism. And I can send you a link to um, the different pillars or different things within white supremacy culture that you can look into power hoarding, paternalism, quantity over quality, a whole bunch of different things. But perfectionism is definitely big for me. You know, within music, we're so bent on getting high scores when being adjudicated. At that point, if that's all we're thinking about, we're no better than the academic teachers that we loathe, who are constantly thinking about test scores and whatnot. Because all we're doing is teaching kids how to play music to achieve a high score. We're teaching them how to have facial expressions, not because they love music but to achieve a higher score when they go and become adjudicated. And I had to look at myself and realize that that was something that I was putting onto my kids. I was out here teaching to make sure the kids look good in front of people, as opposed to teaching the kids because music is something they love. And this is something that they should take a deeper dive into. So that's something that I personally had to work through. As we teach in a choir or band or orchestra, some of it does involve that's not the correct pitch to be playing at this time or the correct text to be singing at this time. How have you worked to strike a balance between getting some of that content delivered in an educational way, but not from a perfectionist mindset? I focus in on decentering my voice and allowing the students to figure out, okay, how are we playing this note wrong? And let them talk it out amongst themselves. Even like letting them hear, okay, here's what happens if you play this note wrong. Do we want to sound like that? Nah. So it's still going for this idea of accuracy or whatever it is we might be going for, but instead of we're going for it because I want you to do it because the end result is we need to impress someone else. Instead, it's we all as students and performers in this group together should want this. Let's figure this out together because it's going to be good for us. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Correct. And you focus on other things throughout the music making process outside of let's learn these pitches correctly. You take a deeper dive into the people that created this music, take a deeper dive into the culture around this music. You take a deeper dive into how can I, as a teacher, connect this to students' lives? How can the students see themselves in the curriculum? Because in all honesty, before we learned about music theory, before we learned about oral skills, we fell in love with music because it made us feel good. So basically grounding students in helping them remember why they fell in love with music in the first place. And I think that joy factor trumps any music theory course that we could ever possibly take. You mentioned there is not a one-size-fits-all solution or a magical way to fix all of this, and one of the very first things you recommend is looking inward. I'm curious, as you have started to become known as an expert nationwide on some of this, what are some of the most common problems that people are coming to you with or questions they are asking you? It's a problem for me, and I know that it's a problem for other Black educators the most common question is how do I teach Negro spirituals? And then they also talk about how can you teach cultural music and sight reading? Going to the first question with Negro spirituals, people who ask me that, and it's like their first question, I have a ton of follow-up questions. And I, in all honesty, it's cringeworthy 
because it's like you are choosing to be so bent on this one style of music that comes from the oppression of Black people when we have created so much music throughout the world, blues, gospel, rock and roll, country, hip-hop, R&B, pop, traditional African music, Afro-Latinx music. Like there's so much more music you can look into, but for some odd reason, you're fixated on this particular genre. How much of that do you think is related to if they go on to J.W. Pepper and start searching for choral literature? There's plenty of spirituals, but probably not a lot of arrangements of public enemy (laughs) that they can use. So I wonder how much of it is an availability of curriculum. And if that's the case, how do you suggest people work around that where it's okay? we want to celebrate music by black artists, black composers, and by far and away, the most accessible and easy thing for me to purchase for my group from a curriculum standpoint are these spirituals. How do we work around that? I had a beautiful conversation like two weeks ago with a gentleman. I'm probably going to butcher his last name, but I'm saying this in good intent. Tony Salza. And him and I were talking and he studied ethnomusicology at UCLA. And he stated, did you know that like 97% around that number of the world's music is not notated. And then, of course, you have that 3%. You have some cultures who notate their music and whatnot. But if you look at an even smaller scope, that means less than 3% of the music that we focus in on our music programs within the United States comes from Eurocentric music theories, So if that's the case, are we truly diversifying our music program if we're only focused in on the music that's written out on paper? The reason why you're not going to find a lot of these songs, especially on J.W. Pepper, is because a lot of this music isn't notated. And we don't push ear training enough within our programs to say, let's just go ahead and learn the song by ear. This is how it would be taught traditionally. Someone else also brought it to my attention. The only reason why mariachi has recently been popping throughout different music programs is because it's finally been notated. But traditionally, mariachi was learned by ear. I think that's the main reason why people gravitate or one of the main reasons why people gravitate towards Negro spirituals is because teachers, one, can find the actual music on your J.W. Pepper or other publishing sites. And in all honesty, some teachers are so scared of decentering their voices in their own classrooms. And if they don't know how to teach this cultural music outside of the ones that's written on paper, they run for the hills. Are there some classroom teachers out there? Are there some resources if a teacher really wants to get into a non-notated piece of music? Maria A. Ellis is definitely a great resource. Um, Shantae Pittman. I know of a Nashville gospel artist named Byron Harvey. He's excellent. Patrick Daly, he's a professor at Tennessee State University. He's amazing. Dorita Seth, he is just a flat out, all around amazing 
conductor. He can teach anything. And he's Cambodian American. He's a great source. And of course you have me. I'm not more so on the choral side of things. I prefer general music if I'm being completely honest, but I have no problem with coming in and working with your students. I always encourage people to step outside of teaching actual performance music and like diving into cultural studies. So of course you have the National Museum for African American Music that has an abundance of resources now. If you have a historically black university or a historically black college near you, definitely contact professors from that music department and they'll be more than willing to come work with your students. Same thing from local black church musicians, reach out to those church musicians, see if they'll come work with your students. Can you tell us a little bit about your culturally responsive curriculum that celebrates Black and Latinx culture? What prompted you to develop the project? Did you encounter any surprises along the way? What should we know? My culturally responsive general music course, it was birthed out of me just being tired of wrestling with the kids in my program need to learn about Eurocentric music and still trying to find a way to see themselves. and. Sad to say, but after the summer of 2020 with George Floyd's death and all of the Black Lives Matter protests, I can admit that I was a part of the bandwagon where I said, you know what, enough is enough. And I just said, I'm going to focus on the demographics in my classroom, and that is predominantly Black and Latinx students. In doing this, I came up with my own curriculum. And I said, okay, first I'm going to lay the foundation down for my students to learn how to hear music so that they can properly describe it. So we went through the elements of music, but instead of me using Eurocentric music, I focused on using music that they knew and they loved and they listened to on a regular basis. Then we went on to Latinx heritage. We focused on Afro-Latinx heritage to combine the two so that the two demographics could see how they work together. We left Afro-Latinx heritage and we made a hard pivot to music and film. Then we worked on genres of music. We talked about Black history. We talked about protest music around the world, including Indigenous and Asian music. And then we ended with hip hop. Now, the biggest hurdle that I had, and I lost a lot of sleep doing this, but I'm telling you this story because if I, as a Black woman, not knowing much about Latinx heritage can do it. White educators can do this with any other culture. I struggled. It was just, I wanted to get it right. That was perfectionism creeping up completely. But I think that was a good perfectionism. Like I just wanted to do right by my kids. So I knew nothing about Latinx heritage. I knew nothing about Norteño or um, Tejano music, mariachi. I knew nothing about it, but I was up wee hours of the night making sure that I understood the music so I could teach it to my kids correctly. So if I, as a Black woman, can do that for my Latinx babies, white folks can do that for any other culture. You maybe answered the question I was just going to ask, which is, let's say you were dropped into a different city in the United States and you were primarily serving students who were from families of Bosnian refugees. Would you then create a curriculum 
for that community, or if it's primarily a community of people from Vietnam? Are you trying to meet the students you have and creating a curriculum for them? Or is the curriculum that you have developed, is that something you would say, no, we should be doing this in all of the schools in the United States? I would definitely change it depending on where I was. So if I went over to Cali and they had a predominantly Cambodian population, I would definitely cater to that crowd. I would cater wherever I went, but I would also have a unit where I expose them to other cultures as well. I just believe in my kids seeing themselves as beautiful within my classroom. So that's what matters most to me at the end of the day. So I got a couple practical questions for you in the development of this curriculum. Was this something where it was summertime and you tried to get most of the curriculum for most of the grades figured out before the school year started? Was this, I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do in August and September and then kind of make it up as I go after that? Can you tell us a little about that for someone who is thinking, yeah, I'm willing to try something other than game plan this year. I'm going to make up my own thing. Like, Where should that teacher start? How much time should they assume this is going to take? What advice do you have? My school, this is something that they have us do anyways, but it was something that I had been wanting to do because I realized that me going in just winging lesson plans and winging unit plans throughout the year, it was taking a toll on my mental health, my self-care. So I had my entire year planned out by July and every quarter What we would do as a school is before you go on break, before the next quarter would start, you would map out every single day that you are teaching in your classroom. It doesn't have to be a lesson plan. You can say, hey, your musicians will be able to X, Y, Z. Your musicians will be able to X, Y, Z. And you basically have all of your days before you go into your fall break, your winter break, your spring break planned out. That made me feel so much better and it gave me so much wiggle room to say, okay, I don't really know much about this topic or maybe this is a great time for me to bring someone from the outside in. I could do that because I knew exactly when I was going to do it, how I wanted it to be done. And I knew I could budget ahead of time to get those folks in there and get them paid. So for anybody coming into teaching or anybody wanting to like diversify their curriculum, I would say make your long range plan, your yearly scope before you go into professional development or during your professional development during the summer. And then each quarter, go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what worked this quarter, this past quarter? What didn't work? Let me go ahead and plan out all of my days for this quarter. And at the end of it all, you will thank your mental health for this. Your kids will thank you for the opportunities that you provided for them and the experiences that you've given them to see themselves as beautiful in your classroom. What do you remember not working? What did you try with your new curriculum? And when you were evaluating, you thought, yep, that didn't go so well. Need to try that again. Is there a mistake you made that maybe some others can avoid making? In all honesty, it's just a person-by-person, class-by-class basis. In my culturally responsive curriculum, it wasn't more so the material. There were some things that I was kind of off in, 
as far as, okay, I can't teach this because this isn't exactly how I thought it would be. Now it's just me learning like new information. It, it was more so class flow. So like, did I want to do a do now for this particular class? Or do I want to give them time to socialize because we are in a pandemic? Do I want to give an assessment? I said, absolutely not. Well, how are you going to grade or how are you going to check to see if they understand something? Okay, let's do an exit ticket. One thing I did have to change because I decided to be project-based, I had to structure my projects a whole lot better. Instead of giving my students all of the directions at one time, I had to like break it up into increments so that they wouldn't feel overwhelmed. Did you have students correct you ever? Did any of your Latinx students, for example, say, oh, Ms. Fripp, <laughs> close, but not quite. Anything like that? With names? Yes. It's so tricky at times because some of my Latinx students will say their name starts with a, you see a J, it's pronounced with a J. And then, you know, the J in Spanish is actually an H sound. So that tripped me up a couple of times and some students corrected me immediately. And I gave them that opportunity to do so. I said, hey, if I'm pronouncing anything incorrectly, please correct me. My Latinx students, it wasn't more so the information that they would critique me on because they found the information to be very informative, very useful and beautiful. And they were very appreciative of it. I did have one student and I took this to heart and this is something I have to go back and revise. He said, I would focus on Latin American artists, like Latinx artists who were born in America, as opposed to like folks from Mexico that made it big in Mexico and around the world, or like folks who came from South America and like had music that was like world renowned. So I definitely have to go back to the drawing board and like make sure I have that representation in there. But I was here for all of the constructive criticism and I sent out multiple surveys to give them an opportunity to give me feedback. Well, it's becoming less common, but we still have many schools and districts in this country serving entirely white populations or almost entirely white populations. So when it comes to diversity and equity, are there some important recommendations or considerations you would give to teachers in these settings? Reflect, see where white supremacy culture comes up in yourself, check your bias, read, and then act. If you reflect and you read, but you have no action behind it, you're an ally. And we don't want no more of those. We are at capacity for allyship. We don't need no more allies. We need co-conspirators. Bettina Love explains what that is in her book. I like to think of it as a cookout. So you know how you have a cookout and you have the people who will like bring paper plates and napkins and maybe a gallon of soda and they will feel like they've done their part. That's an ally. Or even the people who just show up to the cookout, but take all the doggone leftovers at the cookout. That's an ally. Then you have co-conspirators. They see an issue. They see you're running low on such and such. They see that you're not going to get the food out in time and people are hungry. So they are asking you, what do you need in this moment? Do you need me to run to the store? Do you need me to hop on the grill? People who are working beside you and actually making their presence 
not only known, but having action behind it. Those are the people that we need. We don't need any more allies. We need co-conspirators. So that's going to come with you taking action. When you go to perform these cultural pieces or Black pieces of music, make sure you're teaching the full history behind it. What if I lose my teaching licensure because of the CRT ban? Excellent question. If you look into a lot of these laws, they mean nothing. You can still teach about race. You can still teach about Black history, cultural history, and still get your point across without making anybody feel guilty. The thing is, we're not here to try to make any white person feel bad about what happened in the past. We're trying to help you identify things that have happened in the past that are currently going on so that you can dismantle them. So make sure that you're reflecting constantly, make sure that you're reading not only books, but articles, and make sure that you're putting everything that you've learned into action. Because if you're not putting forth any action, that you're not serving a purpose. Wise words from Jasmine Fripp. Thank you for joining us today to share your insight on these important issues. Can we uh, close with a lightning round with a few lighter topics? Go for it. What is the best restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee? Slim and Huskies. It's a pizza joint, black owned. It's amazing. What is your favorite children's book? I'll love you for always. I read that to my daughter. I love you forever. I'll love you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Is there a piece of music, a composer, performer, group that you wish more people knew about? Robert Glasper. He is jazz and hip hop and beauty all combined in one. Robert Glasper. He's awesome. A book recommendation that doesn't have anything to do with music. How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. That's a great starting point for anybody. It breaks down terminology, everything. And finally, if you were not a musician or teacher, what do you think your career would have been? I would be in either educational law or a chef. Jasmine Fripp, this has been a joy. We've been looking forward to this for a while and it did not disappoint. We could talk to you for hours and hours. You are doing important work and we would like to be co-conspirators with you by helping our listeners understand these things a lot better and providing you resources on our website. This has been really special. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this platform. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website and let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list new episodes drop every two weeks on monday mornings get current stay relevant music ed insights